0: Well, this morning we come back yet again to the matter of Christian fellowship. The title of this morning's message is All Things in Common, and we will be in Acts chapter four. If you want to turn there. We believe that God providentially sets the menu for his people, and the task of the preacher, of course, is to simply serve up what God is serving, and we are to serve it piping hot. We have eaten a lot of fellowship pie over the last few years together. I counted, I actually went back and looked through the last three or four books that we preached through. I found eight entire messages devoted to the issue of Christian fellowship, uh, spanning the books of Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, and now the book of Acts. The Lord knows precisely what his church needs, and he has decided that we need yet another helping. Romans 12:9. you just heard it. We're instructed to let love be without hypocrisy. There's to be no play acting in love. No one's faking it. No one's pretending. It is to be sincere. It is to be fervent. It is to be honest. Love in our midst is to be demonstrable. It should be evident, not only to those here, but to those outside. You remember that Jesus said it was our love for one another that would tell the world that he had in fact come and that he is who he is and that he accomplishes what he accomplishes. Let me ask you that question right from the get-go. Do you love your brother in Christ? And that question needs to be followed with a second, and that is, how do you evaluate that? Listen to Calvin's comment on Romans twelve nine. It's blunt, and it is searching. Calvin says regarding this issue of letting love be without hypocrisy, he says, quote, it is difficult to express how ingenious almost all men are in a in counterfeiting a love which they really do not possess. They deceive not only others but also themselves while they persuade themselves that they have a true love for those whom they not only treat with neglect but also, in fact, reject. You ever been the recipient of that kind of love, people who love with their lip? But in reality, you're you're not so sure you believe what they say. You're tempted to, to, to think that their expressions of love are fake love. That they're professing something that they do not in fact possess. Brothers and sisters, this is a critical issue for us. This is critical for you as an individual. It's critical for us as a church. The testimony of Christ depends upon it. In fact, this issue of loving your brother in Christ is about as critical as it gets. You'll remember John in 1 John, over and over again, tells us that love for your brother in Christ is a litmus test, if not the litmus test, as to whether you're genuinely in Christ or not. And that's perfectly reasonable. Christ loves his people. Christ shed his blood for his people. Christ gave everything for his people. He is about his people. And for you to say, I know the love of Christ in my life, but I do not know love for his church, that's discord. That's an oxymoron to think that somehow you can love Christ and not love his people. How do you know if you love the church? How do you know if you love your brother in Christ? Well, one way of answering that question would be to simply look at the things that were listed there in Romans 12. We demonstrate love for one another by being devoted to prayer, by, by caring for one another's needs, by serving one another with fervency, all those kinds of things, and all the epistles address just that sort of thing. We also could look at the one another's of Scripture, and you could ask yourself, do I serve my brother in Christ, consistently. Do I care for them when they're in need? Am I hospitable to them? We're commanded to be kind to one another, to encourage one another, to confess our sins to one another. We're called to be devoted to one another, to comfort one another, to pray for one another, to forgive one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. You could look at all those one-anothers, and there are, I don't know, 40, 50 of them in Scripture. They certainly, each and every one of them, imply, don't they, that, that we have close relationships with one another, that we are, we are not a group of people who descend on this place for a few hours on a Sunday and then depart having nothing to do with one another the rest of the week. We are vested in relationship with one another, There are many such expressions of genuine love that are given in the scriptures, but one of the most accurate barometers of your love for your brother and sister in Christ is what you're willing to sacrifice materially for them. Here's John again in 1 John three seventeen, But whoever has the world's goods, and we do, don't we, my American friends, we do, He's not talking here about Elon Musk. He's not referring to Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos. He's talking to us. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You understand the argument. James makes the same argument in chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You see, love can be tested, and it can be tested objectively. We're not talking here about an emotion that no one can measure, we're talking about a wholehearted Mind, body, material, everything, everything about us is at the disposal of Christ. You could ask it this way, do I love the church? Well, and by church again, we mean the people of Christ. Do I meet the needs of my brothers in Christ? As we come to the passage this morning, Luke has been giving us a window into the early days of the Christian church, and we come to yet another summary statement at the end of chapter 4, just as we did at the end of chapter 2. In fact, keep your finger there in chapter 4, but flip the page back to the left and come to the end of chapter 2. And I just want you to see the similarity in these two statements. Look at verse 42. He's just said that those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is after Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And here's Luke's summary. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need, and daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and with sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. The church was comprised of those who had repented of their sins, had placed their trust in Christ for salvation. They had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, baptized into Christ's church. They were filled then with that spirit They were baptized in water, and the text tells us they were together, they were unified, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, to praying together, to enjoying their meals together with sincerity of heart. And You remember that word was the idea of without stones. There were no stones in their relationship. There was nothing to impede their their communion with one another. What an incredible time in the church. And if you've been in Christ for any length of time, if you've been part of this church for any length of time, you've known some measure of this, undoubtedly. Beyond that, the church was bold. They were not together and unified and devoted only. They were also bold in their commitment to preach the gospel. And the church was sacrificial in its love and its care for one another. And so Luke brings all of those things out in chapter two, but then we come to the end of chapter four and he reiterates it all again. In fact, he doesn't actually add anything new to what he said in the past. Now, why would you do that? Why would you write something again that you've already stated? Why come back to this? Why make an emphasis of this? Well the point is he wants to make an emphasis of it i think for a couple of reasons one i think he was astonished and just relishing in the reality that here were thousands of people who had come to Christ and there was such a spirit among them because of the holy spirit in them that he he just couldn't stop talking about it. And beyond that, he, he wants us to see and be reminded again about the true nature of fellowship in Christ. Well, let's look at chapter 4, and we'll pick up in verse 32. You remember they had, Peter and John had been persecuted. They had come back to the church. They gave a report, and then the church bows in prayer, and they ask God, verse 31, for boldness to speak the word of God with confidence. And they did, in fact, do just that. And then we pick up this morning in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them was saying that any of his possessions was his own. But for them... Everything was common. And with great power, the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite, of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons, son of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it, and bought, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, let's pray. Father, this is your word, and again, we come to it with such eagerness because your word is our bread, it is our life, it is uh, your very mind, and Lord, we long to know you and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we pray this morning that you would take your word, that you would implant it deep, that it would lodge there, that we would glean from these things so that we might be pleasing to you individually and corporately. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin with what I've called a description of corporate unity. We just get a description of it. We're just told of it. Verse 32, note, he says, and the congregation of those who believed or the multitude of believers. It speaks of a great throng, a great crowd, the fullness of of the church, The ESV puts it this way, the full number of those who had believed, NIV says all the believers, and that is the point, the entire assembly, the whole church, and that is no minor statement. You'll remember they were gathering at the temple, and we're told on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 came to faith. Then we're told that the Lord was adding to their numbers daily. Then we're told after Peter's preaching That 5,000 men came to Christ, and if that's intended to say males and not just generally mankind, then it may be that that 5,000 actually represents 15,000 if you add in women and children. The bottom line is is that you've got 10,000, 20,000, who knows how many people here gathering together, and that kind of rapid numerical growth... I mean, that's the kind of thing that crushes a business, right? If it grows too quickly. Can you imagine the pressure on the apostles when you go from 120 a week ago to boom, you are now thousands of people. And what's amazing and what Luke wants us to see is that that Christ-like love that existed because of the indwelling spirit compelled them to take an interest in caring for one another in amazing ways. But before we get there, let's look at their unity. Again, verse 32, the congregation of those that believed, look at this, were of one heart and soul. Now what does that mean, one heart and soul? Well, that language comes right out of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. And the idea is that you would love God with your mind, with the whole of your being and with everything you possess. All of you. All of you is to be fully devoted to all of him. And that's the language that's used here. That same devotion that is is between you and Christ has implications on a horizontal level in the way that we love one another. Your love for Jesus, your wholehearted, whole being, all my everything that rightfully belongs to God and is at his disposal spills over the top and onto the rest of your relationships with the church. Man, they were devoted to one another. Heart and soul. They were knit together. That's why I love that language in chapter 2 and verse 42 that they were devoted to the fellowship. That is to say they were devoted to their relationships in Christ. Devoted to them. They weren't happenstance. They didn't just happen because, well, they happened to be in the same geographic location for a couple of hours a week. No, they were devoted to one another. They cared for one another. They were one in Christ. And you cannot live with some kind of loose attachment. Your family, right? This is something beyond what so much of the church ever knows, and like I said, I've known it here, beloved. You've known it here. And we should never overlook it. We should never think that that's just common. In fact, that we would abound still more. I, nothing delights me further than to have people visit, to come to a Christmas dessert and say, I can't put my finger on this thing, but this place, there's something about your love for one another, that is palpable, it's tangible, it's so evident. What is it? I love that they think we're weird. That's good. You see, this this thing might be kind of hard to pin down and define with precision, But we do have a sense of what it means. They were unified through and through. And all of them in every way. We comes before me every time. And that is an amazing thing. How many times have you heard in a wedding ceremony that this is not a 50-50 arrangement? Not in Christ, it's not. This is about you, husband, being in 100% to live for the good of your wife and to die to yourself. And wife, you are in 100% to die to yourself, to live to the good of your head. And when two people are dying to themselves to live for the good of the other, you have a successful, happy, God-glorifying relationship. Beloved, it is no different in the church. Not at all. Things will be peaceful here. Things will be unified. We will function like a spiritually well-oiled machine as long as no one begins to think of themselves. You see, that's where these people were coming from. This thing called the church is just fresh out of the wrapper, and these people are so overwhelmed by this this thing that has happened to them that it has radically changed the way they view everything it is amazing when we comes before me because when we come out of the womb we are sinfully addicted to self Self-pleasing, self-serving, self-protecting. You just, all the self-words. That is our world. But Christ redeems us, and his spirit indwells us, and he makes of us new creatures. Behold, all things have become new, and we now live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and raised again on our behalf, we live for God and we live for others. There is this affection that is born in us for the children of God, again, that that, that is undeniable. And beloved, that is a mighty, mighty demonstration of the power of God in a life. Again, don't underappreciate that. This is, group of believers, new as they were and rapidly expanding as they were, were of one heart and soul. They were a family. They had one identity. They had one Messiah. They had one Lord. They had one faith. They had one salvation. They had one common hope and one baptism and one mission and one passion for the gospel. And that does not mean, by the way, that they were cookie-cutter Christians. It doesn't mean that they all read from the same translation or that, that they educated their children in the same way or that they walked lockstep on every issue. In fact, what's so astonishing about the gospel, again, go back to thinking about Ephesians Chapters 1 and 2, and what happens? You have Jew and Gentile, the most irreconcilable groups ever, seated together on a pew. Who can do that but Christ? You see, the amazing thing about the gospel is that it and it alone in this world is able to take people who are selfish and so different from one another in nearly every way and to bring them commonly to the same table and reconcile them together and actually stir them up to love for one another. We're aware that in the epistles there that there is enough wiggle room for various convictions and consciences that differ over some things but but the point here is that 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 the There's this very definite and obvious sense of togetherness. We're so together that it obscured all of those secondary matters. It obscures all those differences. It makes them seem small and inconsequential. Now, they had found their Messiah, and they had been forgiven their sins, And they were reconciled to God and therefore they were reconciled to one another and there was peace and there was harmony and there was a commonality of vision, the constancy of purpose and devotion to the gospel. And frankly, that can't be recognized except by a commonness of spiritual life in the Holy Spirit. You remember when we spoke... Just back in Acts chapter 2, we talked a bit about fellowship. You remember that word, you know it, koinonia. The noun means to have close association with or partnership with. The verb means to share or participate or to contribute. It's a sharing in common. And it is this rich, wonderful, relational word. And that, if, if I were to get you to write something down, it would be that, that it's relational. It speaks of corporate unity, this singleness of mind and purpose, this resolve to live the Christian life together. And I gave you this definition that koinonia really fellowship is a common participation in the life of God that results in a common participation in the works of God. Do you remember that? A common participation in the life of God. How how do we get that? Well, we have the life of God indwelling us by the Spirit of God, right? We have a, a life dynamic. But that dynamic produces something in the Christian. It produces a common participation in the work of God. Well, that leads us then to our second point, or our second observation, if you will. This, this unity in the, in the first community, this, this fellowship of the saints, it's very transparent You can see it. Look at the expression of unconventional generosity. I searched for a lot of words to to, to set off this idea of generosity. Uh, Exceptional, radical, nuts, crazy, shocking. You see, the problem is you all know this passage, but you haven't really sat with it to think through. Would I really mortgage my home? would I sell it for the good of another? That property on which I plan to retire in Idaho, would I off that thing to care for the guy sitting to the left or right of me? I decided to go with unconventional because it is that. It is an expression of unconventional generosity Verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, not, get this, not one was saying that any of his possessions, wait a minute, Luke, surely you're being, you're, 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 you're overstating the case. Not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own. But for them, everything was common. And that word common there is related to the, the word koinonia. Everything was shared. And again, as I said earlier, this is one of the fundamental ways that Christian fellowship is expressed. This is one of those tests. And boy, did this church pass it. This is, this is interesting, but you know, if you look up the various uses of koinonia in the New Testament, you will find that it is most commonly used in a context speaking of sharing possessions with people in need. That's intriguing. It's used a number of ways, but most often it's used to speak about sharing possessions. Listen to some of the passages in which the word koinonia is used, either as a noun or a verb. Romans 12, 13, Paul says that unhypocritical love is manifested by sharing, there's our word, in the needs of the saints. Romans 15, 26, and 27, Paul commends the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. He he says of them, they were pleased to share, there's our word, with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 8.4, he commends those same churches for sharing in the ministry to the saints. 2 Corinthians 9.13, Paul encourages the Corinthians to demonstrate generosity in their fellowship toward needy saints. There's our word, their fellowship toward them. And in this case, that referred to the the giving of money. 1 Timothy 6.18, Timothy is commanded to instruct those who have money to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to koinonia, ready to share. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect doing good and sharing, fellowshipping, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So can we just land here that that this is just what Christians do? The life of God, the life of the generous God, the life of the good God who gives all good things to be enjoyed, the life of of the God who is the Father of lights from whom all good things come, that God's life in you should be spilling out of you in the same likeness. Christians share their stuff. And it begins with an attitude. Not one was saying that's what he means. There was an attitude amongst the multitude that that not not even one was saying that their stuff was their own. That's amazing. Nobody asserted their ownership rights over anything. You're all getting nervous, aren't you? You're going, what's he gonna do when he gets to application? It, uh, <laughs> No one was clinging to their stuff. There was no possessiveness, no selfishness. Again, we live in a world that is unapologetically, unapologetically, in fact, we boast of it, right? You guys remember the show back in the day called Cribs where guys would get on there and show the ostentatious lifestyle they led? That's embarrassing, right? We live in a world that is unapologetically centered on self and bent, absolutely bent on the accumulation of material goods. It's just more, 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 more. It is the American way. And we've grown up here. And we tend to, we tend to swim in these waters and we're not as sensitive to it, I don't think, as, as we should be, in fact, Some of you will get grumpy. You're going to think I'm picking on capitalism. I'm not. I still think it's the best system, if you will. But in a sense, that raw, pagan, self-serving capitalism is the engine in that thing is what? It is personal ambition for success and material goods. That's what drives it. And much of the church does not even acknowledge that that's what's driving the church. Beloved, we've, we've, we've got to understand these things and, and take them to task. To be driven by personal ambition to attain status and stuff, work hard, earn lots, buy more, enjoy it. That is the life philosophy of many, and sadly, many in the church. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. You love that stuff, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that is my passions, the lust of the eyes, that is possessions, material goods, and the boastful pride of life, that is, that is prominence and prestige to pursue that stuff is to say that you are worldly. We are no longer to be worldly. We have an entirely different agenda. Mine is in the heart of man. And so much time, effort, and energy goes into the pursuit of material goods and the preservation of material goods, the procurement of it and the enjoyment of it, Jesus says, you know what? All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. You wanna know who lives like that? Jesus says it's the non-Christian. They're trying to suck every last drop out of this lemon before they die. But that is not us. Our best life is not now. And that is not these saints, Not, not anymore and never again. The lust of their eyes had given way to the love of Christ in their hearts and they were not clinging any longer to any material goods. In fact, they were were divesting themselves in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were taking their treasure on earth and converting it into eternal treasure in heaven. It makes sense, right, that if we are the household of God, then we are family. If, if we are the body of Christ and each one of us members of one another individually, what happens to me happens to you. The poverty of someone in this congregation or the need of someone in this congregation is our need no one in Christ can look at the need of a brother or sister in Christ and say, be warmed, be filled, but I'm not going to do squat for you. Man, and that just, that just comes right to our front door, doesn't it? Because it means that I've got to be involved with people, I've got to know people, I've got to know them, be close enough to know their needs and then there's the burden of listening to that need, and then there's the burden of trying to meet that need, and there's the burden of praying for that need. Yes, this is the Christian life. That is to walk in the footsteps of Christ. Do you think he just trotted to the cross and that there was no cost involved? Do you know what it took to procure your salvation and mine? Beloved Christianity is costly, And it is committal. When one is in need in this body, or when we come to the knowledge of the need of another brother or sister in Christ in other parts of the world, I'm not going to talk about that so much today, though we should. When someone is in need, when our brother is in need, we rush to meet it. In fact, this text tells us that everything for them was in common. And this is not, by the way, speaking of communism. It was a fellowship with one another. It was a common love for one another so that your need becomes my need and my Supply becomes your supply. This is not. You're going to have to resist all that stuff, the ungodly stuff we see in our culture, the redistribution of wealth, the, 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 the attempt by some to take what you have and to give it to others. This is not some kind of handout for the lazy and the unproductive. You remember Paul says, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. He's not talking here about just selling your stuff and giving it to someone else so that everybody's on an equal plane. He's talking about those who have, sharing with those who have not. Genuine love meeting a genuine need. Look at verse 34. For there was not a, note the word, a needy person among them. And then he lays out how this played out. For for all who were owners of land or houses, I mean, these are the the primary builders of wealth are they not for all who own land or houses they would sell them and i think it's most likely that we're talking here not about everybody selling their own house so much as having a a vacation home or a, a rental home or or a piece of land that that could be perhaps divided and and selling off a piece of that it does no good, of course, to put yourself in poverty to pull somebody out of poverty. That just becomes a very cyclical sort of deal. But people were willing to go to extreme lengths to meet the needs of the church. And they would take those proceeds and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed again, note this to each as any had need. So, need is the point, not want. This isn't you selling your boat so that somebody else can buy that antique car they've always wanted. That's not at all. That's Again, that's an American interpretation of these verses. You you need to understand what's going on here. God's ideal among his people really was that there would be no poor. Charles this morning in discipleship training went through Deuteronomy 15. And and the, the whole chapter is given to these laws that were intended to make sure that no one became so poor or, or uh, had to become enslaved, no, God had arranged it so that everything would, would continue to uphold everybody. And that, that, that's the mindset that these Jews are coming from. And so they met that by selling land and houses and, and whatever was it, at need, and they would give it to the apostles to dispose of as they believed best. You should also note that this was not compulsory, it was not mandatory, this was voluntary. Peter's not up there saying, you, sir, are rich, sell your home. That's, that, that, that's not how this is going down. In fact, the verb tenses imply that the liquidation of assets was happening gradually over time as needs arose. People didn't just all run out and sell their stuff. That that wasn't the way this happened. Over time, as it was needed, they were selling more and more things, and no one was clinging to their stuff. Most of the people, it's estimated that well over 70% of people in this day and age had little to nothing. They had had no property. They owned nothing. Uh, they, They either rented a home or they had something perhaps... Uh, they they live together as a family to try and make it all function, but the bottom line is that mo- for most people it was just hand to mouth, and you'll remember that many Jew, <coughs> many <coughs> excuse me, I want to drink some water before I sound like I'm 13 again. <laughs> many-, <coughs> many Jews had come uh, from from foreign places for Pentecost and they had gotten saved and they wanted to stay right there uh, at, at the church in Jerusalem. And others, of course, as we see, perhaps have have, have maybe lost their ability to, to make money. They had lost their income because of persecution. Whatever the case, the needs in Jerusalem were acute. And so this was too much for them to simply kind of have a special offering, pass a, a, a bucket around, and everybody just toss a few coins into it. So... They sold their stuff. Here's the reality: God gives some people lots, and and the Lord keep us from that mindset that tends to look at what we possess and say, uh, "That is mine. I've earned those things. I've accomplished those things." The fact is, whatever God has given to you, whatever your station in life, that in fact is the station in life God has given to you. And he will provide for you. And one of the ways that he provides for those with less is he gives some people more. And so giving, again, this is where you can't just sort of throw out a flat tax and and, and call it good. This is how God works to meet the needs of his people is, is he, he gives money to some more than he gives to others he gives possessions to some more than he gives to others but the point isn't that it would simply be yours and you could live on it and everybody else you go make your own money the idea is that that money would then be devoted to god and we would use it in a way yes we enjoy it yes we enjoy some of it for ourselves But the focus is that if somebody is in need, then we need to to make a way to meet that need if we're able. That's why back in Romans 12, Paul encourages those to give, to do what? To do that generously, over the top. He goes through that whole list of spiritual gifts, and he says, if you're a teacher, then get on with it. Do it with all your heart. But if you're a giver, then if God's given you much, then give and realize that with such sacrifices, God is pleased. should go without saying I suppose that the world doesn't do this oh well so and so gave you know two million dollars yeah but he's worth 13 billion right Uh, the world does not do this not on this kind of scale and certainly not from this kind of motive and not with this kind of abandon abundant giving reckless generosity if you will is one of the birthmarks of God's people. Well, how did they get there? And this is our, our third observation, and that is, this, this is the means to Christian charity, and this is the means to Christian love. This is why these people were this way. What motivated them? What caused them to leave, live with such a t- attachment to people and such a detachment from their stuff? And it's interesting, when you read this, you you get down to verse 33 and you say, well, that's kind of an interruption in the flow of what he was thinking, which is why I pulled verse 34 up. Right? He's talking in verse 33 about people not saying that any of their possessions was their own. And then you read in verse 34, there was not a needy person. There were owners of land and houses. They'd sell all that stuff. Why does he stick a verse about preaching In verse 33, well, I think Luke, again, is treasuring up in his mind and heart the rich fellowship that these brothers and sisters shared, and he's thinking back on the selflessness and the generosity of the church in those days, and he's reflecting on the reality of all this how this came to be. And I I want you to just look at this verse and really, if, if you're an underliner, underline two words. I want you to underline the word power and I want you to underline the word grace. And if you're really an underliner, you might underline great power and great grace. Remember, this is a reflective statement. This is just a summary statement. He's not giving us any new information at all. He's told us, hasn't he, in chapter two, the apostles preached preached their guts out, the apostles preached diligently and boldly and and directly, and they proclaimed Christ and they proclaimed the resurrection. He tells us the same thing in chapter 3 after healing the crippled man. And then again before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. And then they have that great prayer for boldness. And all of this has been going on and it's what continues to go on, and that's really Luke's point. And, 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 And the fact that it's going on, we need to remember this, that it wasn't merely... See, we tend to envision this as Peter and John and the apostles and some in the church who were bolder going out and witnessing to those who'd never heard the gospel, and that was surely going on. But much of the preaching that was going on was also in-house. It was to the church. Remember, they were devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. So you have here what is evangelistic, undoubtedly, but it's more than evangelistic, And there's every reason to expect that much of the preaching that Luke is referring to here was in the presence of the church. And I think this is the point that a powerful gospel that is preached accurately and and with one's heart and soul will, in fact, make the church so enthusiastic about the gospel that saved them that they actually open their wallets. You go, wait a minute, that is not what that text says. And I say, well, think about it for a minute. You see, powerful gospel preaching pries your hands loose. Why? Because what happened in the gospel? He who is equal with God, what, did not count that equality as something to be held on to with a white knuckle grip. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant. He came in his incarnation to earth. He humbled himself. He divested himself of the the free exercise of his, his divinity. He submitted himself to the Father in obedience, yes, as God and also as man. And he was obedient to his Father to the point of death. And even death on a cross. He impoverished himself that you and I might be made rich. Now do you see the connection? That kind of preaching will pry your hands off of your stuff. You see, I think it really was in Luke's mind that the great power of God, which was unleashed through the preaching of the gospel of the risen Christ, was the very thing that caused these people to overflow in the abundance of their giving. It was the thing, the gospel was the thing that, that broke them of their love of the world and all of its lusts and all of its material, uh, you know, shimmering junk. And, and 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 they they gave that away because that didn't matter to them anymore. He mattered to them. He mattered to them. All that had formerly possessed their heart had been exchanged for a whole new thing that possessed their heart, and that was Christ. You want to know why these people were going to such extremes in their generosity toward the needy? It was the great power of God as it was preached and proclaimed and unleashed through the gospel of the resurrected Christ. But that wasn't all. The text goes on to say that there was also great grace that was upon them all. In other words, when, when you see people marked by this kind of unity, when you see people marked by this kind of sacrificial love and generosity, you should immediately think, ah, oh, the power of God is among them and the grace of God is upon them. Most of us have memorized a definition for the the word grace as, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense or God's favor upon the undeserving. And, And all that is correct. But it's more than that. And you need to hang on to this. Grace is a dynamic, it's alive, it is a power. It is the power of God to live like God and to. Do the works of God. Turn over the book of Titus. We'll just illustrate this this way. The book of Titus, and chapter 2. In verse 11, the grace of God is a dynamic. It does things. Note note the way that Paul writes about the grace of God here. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. But notice in verse 12 that that grace does something. That grace not only brings salvation, but it instructs us. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires that we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see that that grace is actively working in God's people, and the evidence that God's grace is upon them is that they begin to live differently. They deny ungodliness. They turn away from worldly desires. And instead, they begin to live a sensible life, a righteous life, a life that's like God. That's what godly means in the present age. And they begin to focus Less upon the things of this life, and they start looking what? Upward for the blessed hope, for the return of Christ, for our, our our going to be with him. That that is a radically changed worldview, and that happens because the grace of God is upon them. One other illustration, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I referenced this text earlier, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. Remember, the point I'm making is that grace is a dynamic, it does something. In fact, I'm going to put it this way giving is a grace. It is evidence that the grace of God is upon you when you are spurred to give up what so easily dominates our lives and our hearts in this life for God's kingdom and his purposes. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Here Paul is going to praise the churches of Macedonia because he's collecting money for the impoverished church, the same one we're at in there in, in uh, Acts 4. He he is raising money for them because their needs are so great. Now, brothers, we make known to you, note this, the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded. These churches were not rich, but it abounded under the richness of their generosity. How do poor churches Give generously, the grace of God is upon them. That in a great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the richness of their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Again, it's not compulsory, it's not mandatory, it's free will. But look at the way the churches of Macedonia looked at this thing. Here they were in their poverty. They knew the need in Jerusalem, and they are now, look at verse 4. You won't believe the word. They are begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in this ministry to the saints. Paul, you cannot leave here without us giving of our stuff. Paul says, you guys don't have. You don't need to. Paul, you're not listening to us. We want to give, and we've gathered some things together. We insist. Please, Paul, begging us with much urging for the grace, there it is again, of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, Paul says, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we encourage Titus, he turns back to the Corinthians, that as he, had previous, as he had previously made a beginning, that is with the Corinthians, so he would complete it in you, this gracious work as well. Just as you abound, he says in verse seven, in everything, in faith, in word, in knowledge, in all earnestness. In other words, you got, you got all the motivation behind you, but he says, how about that Love. He says, we want to see this, see you abound in this gracious work also. And he uses it again down in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might be rich. It's a gracious work. That is to say, not just that it's kind, but that it's evidence that the grace of God is upon us us when we eagerly sacrifice to meet the needs of other people Paul's argument is that when you understand what Christ has done for you when you understand the generosity of Jesus in giving everything for you it compels you to beg to be generous to others Commentator Peter O'Brien writes this, quote, if the unity of the Spirit is real, then it must be transparently evident. It's got to be sh- seen. And believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that this is so. Here's the point. To live in a manner that mars the unity of the Spirit is to spite the gracious reconciling work of Christ. It is tantamount to saying that his sacrificial death is of no real consequence to us. Do you understand that? When you're tempted to selfishness, when you're tempted to, to just think about your own little world, that is to forget what's been done for you. That's to look at the sacrifice of Christ and to say, it doesn't matter much to me. I don't think much in those terms. And it's the same way with forgiveness. When you're unwilling to forgive other people, what are you saying about the forgiveness of Christ? Eh, not that big of a deal. You see, but the work of Christ on the cross, risen, ascended, returning, indwelling us, having given his mind and the word and all the things that, all the blessings that we have in Christ, all of that should have such a radical impact upon us that we just, that is our motive for everything. We just live out of it. It's from that set of lenses that we just begin to look at, look at everything about our lives. Another commentator says this, what you have here is an enterprise of divine character. That's exactly right. When you look at the church in Acts, what you have is a very snapshot of the divine character of God. The way they were behaving, the way they were thinking, the way they were treating one another, it was nothing other than the life of God in them and the works of God through them. And then Luke, to finish up, gives us an example of one such person who was full of the grace of God. Look at verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, you know that word, that name, by the apostles which is translated son of encouragement who owned a field. He sold it and bought, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This, this, by the way, would make a really good Bible trivia question, I think. What, what, what was the given name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement? I couldn't have done it. I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, Joseph. I'm a nickname guy, I really am. If you spend any time around me or your kids have, you, you know that they've been given new names. It's just, the I don't know, my dad, I don't know where I got it, but I'm a nickname guy, and the, the apostles, this, this is my justification for being a nickname guy, the apostles give Barnabas a nickname. Son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. He was a Levite which is interesting because Levites were not to own property. But by this time, whether he'd inherited it or whether, whether, whether all that had just sort of fallen off to a great extent, we don't know. But for whatever case, he owned a piece of property and he sold it. He, he, was, he was from the island of Cyprus. I learned another thing this week. Barnabas shows up. Not once, not five times, not 10 times, not 12, but 23 times in the book of Acts. He is a primary character. Undoubtedly, he is one of Luke's heroes. Luke singles him out here and he upholds him as a model of the very thing that he's already told us about. And I think really he's upheld as a stellar example because you know what happens in the next few verses, don't you, of chapter 5? We're introduced to a married couple by the name of Ananias. Ananias, Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. What 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 happened with them? Yeah, you know already, right? Well, it's against that black backdrop of Ananias and Sapphira that Barnabas shines so brightly. What shall we say about all of this? Just a few things. Number one, you profess to love Christ, then this much is clear. You will love his people. If you love Christ, you will love his people. And that's not something ethereal, and it's not even something that you can go, look sort of inwardly and introspectively at, you need, to, you need to consider your works, brother and sister. You need to think through, no, no, where actually am I making a sacrifice in my life for the people of God? We all need to evaluate that. Like I said, that, that, that cuts down to the, the most important of questions because that's a salvific issue. Do I love my brother in Christ? The second thing I would say is this, that love for Christ's people will demonstrate itself at a heart level. That is to say it will demonstrate itself emotionally. It will, but it also will manifest itself practically. And you will be knit together with Christ's people, mind and soul. If you love the church and I'm not talking here about the institution, but again about his people. You're going to be deeply vested in those relationships. Again, deeply vested. They're not secondary to you. I love the way Joseph Hellerman put it. He said, Salvation that is coming to Christ, salvation is a community creating event. You say, I'm not a people person. God says, Change. I don't love people. You must. He will bear that out in your life. He will change you. Some of us have a vision for just wanting to maintain our independence and wanting to maintain our personal space and wanting to, to, to have people just leave us alone and we'll leave you alone, live and let live. All of those things that are common and American and all of that, this is frankly what scares a lot of people from a church that's living right. Lee. Living rightly. What will scare them is is the fact that this place, you're known. This is one of the biggest appeals to big box churches. I'm a number. I can walk in there. Nobody will know whether I was there or not. Nobody, frankly, even really cares whether I was there or not. I can get in, do my religious deal. I can get out, and I'm unaccountable. That is not God's design for the church. And I'm not faulting big churches. I'm simply saying that big churches have a challenge that we don't have so much. How do we get our people to do these things and to know one another? I don't ever want to be a big church pastor. I never did want to be a big church pastor. I like this because it's either all of us together or this place doesn't happen, right? There's no professional class here, and that's as it should be. We don't hire everything out. no we are family by god's design and if you just think of it that way it will help you i think because you go you know would it be okay if dad didn't show up for thanksgiving dinner no well why because he's part of the family would it be okay if sister didn't go to brother's baseball game no why because a sister should support her brother but she doesn't like baseball doesn't matter You see how this plays out? I'm not thinking about me. I mean, is, is that it? No. We. We are family by God's design, and everyone's accountable. Third thing I would say is this, that Unity in the Holy Spirit, this shared life in Christ, will produce a sharing in the works of Christ. God will lay hold, beloved, of every aspect of your life. He wants everything. He wants your thinking. He wants your doing. He wants your workplace. He wants your children. He wants your house. It's his house. And he wants your land. And he wants your bank account. And he wants your wallet. Everything. Everything. I always love that scene where Christ sends his disciples. He says, hey, look, remember this? Right prior to the triumphal entry. Scripture says that I'm supposed to ride in on a a donkey, on the foal of a colt. You go down the road here to L and 5th, and you will find a donkey tied up to a a fence, to a guy's yard. Go get it and bring it to me. They're thinking, hmm, isn't that thievery? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what does he tell them when the guy comes out of the house and says hey what are you doing with my donkey you just tell them the Lord has need of it oh that's the Lord's donkey right there is not a donkey in your stall that does not belong to him there's not an hour of your day that does not belong to him there's not a penny in your bank account that does, does not belong to him all of us for all of him and he will use your strength and he will take your time and he will lay hold of your stuff and your treasure will no longer be this world and its goods your treasure will be God and the gospel and his people and and, and the promotion of the kingdom of God and he, he will radically reorient your compass. If you come to Christ today, he will radically reorient your compass and the world will get become less and more distant and what will begin to dominate the horizon of your life will be God and his kingdom. <laughs> and here's the kicker, and I always hate to say it because I don't want you lumping me in with Joel, but, but you will be happy, <laughs> Okay? You will be happy because it's better to give than to receive. You'll be happy because you were not made to to love things and use people, but you were made to use the things you were given to love people. You will be happy because you will be giving and the whole focus of your life and the accomplishment of the gospel and what God has done for you is he's turned you from a lover of self now to a lover of God and a lover of others and your whole life is just outward. You're not thinking about you anymore, which will make you happy. You will know joy as you've never known it. And I just want to close with these words, and they are as sincere as anything else I've said in this message. I am so grateful that so many of you have understood everything I've said. And you understand it because I see it in you. I know it from you. You demonstrate these things, and I am forever stunned by the generosity of this congregation toward one another and toward those in need, both here and around the world. I really, really am. A couple of weeks ago, we took that First Fruits offering, and you all provided, again, over the top, over over $14,000 dollars to be given to our missionaries. And that's an above and beyond your regular giving. That that was just you sacrificing whatever it is you sacrifice to be able to do it. Beloved, that's the right heart. May the Lord increase our heart, may we abound still more and more. Let's have the music team come forward and we're going to close today with a new song, one that has been stuck in my head for weeks. It's a simple song. It's, it's a really good reminder that we belong to the Lord and we are not our own. Let's stand together. We never were created to be our own, which is why the world can never be happy because that's what they're pursuing. You have the secret, beloved, by looking to Christ to understand how life ought to be lived. I love these words, Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do what he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace abound to you, So that everything at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Go and do likewise, my good friends, and you will know the joy of the Lord. God bless you.